Hey everyone, it's Megan. And RJ. And we're just popping in real quick, because this episode was recorded back in December. So, Happy New Year! Happy 2018. No, wrong year. 2017. Even worse. 2020. Sure, why not? I'll take it. We, we survived, again, which is always good. Your lung didn't explode. I broke a tooth, so that kind of continues the tradition of, of wintertime accidents. <laughs> Uh, Just a reminder that I will be at PodCon in Seattle on January 19th and 20th. RJ won't, because he just doesn't like you guys. Megan's rates are very reasonable. (laughs) I will be there with stickers and and swag from Ono Lit Class, but also mainly representing the other podcast I do, Rolling Misadventures, the real play uh, slash audio drama slash hilarious nightmare podcast with Derek of the sometimes geek podcast and charles of talk and roll um we're going to be at booth 15 which is by it's right by the meet and greet actually so if you're gonna go like get something signed or like gonna get like a a real good picture with a mcelroy we'll be right there just like hey waving trying to get your attention right between your bar mitzvah bat mitzvah and your sweet 16 that yes (laughs) The last thing I want to do is thank our wonderful, beautiful, amazing, dare I say sexy, patrons. All 47 of them. Three more. Three more. And I will stop. RJ, you want to go through? You want to talk about our patrons? You want to thank them? You want to say how much you love them? They're being very wise with their investments. Do you have a a theme you want me to do? We haven't done that in a while. Because otherwise I'm just going to read them in alphabetical order because there's so fucking many. Uh, include Aaron, Alexander, Amy B, Amy W. I think you should read them like Goofy. I can't do a Goofy voice. You can. I can't do it. Oh, yeah. All right. Here, you want to? Nope. Then don't tell me what to fucking do. Aaron, Alexander. I don't know what that means either. Sound like your brother. Best day. That's his name. Yes, I don't know. You might know him. Well, one of the things our patrons get to enjoy is we just put up a bonus episode from when we went out and visited my brother, Jared Bestay, and we did a really great episode about Japanese video games based on Western literature, like Dracula and Tom Sawyer. And it's, it's a blast, but you have to give us your money so that you can hear it. Much like Aaron, Alexander, Amy B, Amy Batman. W, Batman, Aries, John Connor, Ariel, at Ariel Teague, Barry, Ben at KSJM, Brandon, Brett, Brittany, Caitlin at Rose of Phantom, certainly Cheryl, Chris Osborne at Play Comics, Dirk. I hate that guy. <laughs> Don't do that. Dirk Dammit at Killing You Guy, ES, Florian, Harriet, Janet, Jared, Jen, Jenna, Camilla, Karen, Kate, Caitlin, KT, Legion to Kate, Caitlin, and Katie. Uh, oh, Nope. <laughs> Kendall, Kiki, Ladykins40, Lonnie at Lanyon, Lucas, Mads Matema, Mads R, Mads Mickelson, Baby, one day, uh, Matthew, your boy, Chips Ahoy, Morgan, Natalie, Not Alone Podcast and Not Alone Pods, Pseudo Bread, Sam, Sam Ariel, Sarah C, Sarah H, Sarah R, Sarah Huckabee? No, absolutely not. We have the Kate, Katie, and Caitlin, and we have the Sarah and two other Sarahs with an H. Tanner, Wendy, and White Chocolate Temptation. Shout out to Reykjavik. <laughs> Shout out to Reykjavik. We, we love you, Reykjavik listener. <laughs> we love all of our listeners. We especially love our patrons. And uh, give us give us your money. <laughs> if you've been impacted by the government shutdown. I don't know what to tell you. 
We hope you gain some enjoyment from this very good episode. Give money anyway. We love you. We don't forgive. <laughs> or forget. <laughs> Bye. You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors. Fresh takes. Ruining required reading. One book at a time. Welcome to Ono Lit Class, the podcast that's walking in a winter wonderland. And then it stepped in poop, and it's just very bad. It's a horrible situation, and it's stuck all up in my shoes. It's in the creases. It's terrible. That's a real problem in the Northeast. Also, are we Christopher Walken? Yes, we are We are absolutely Christopher Walken in a winter wonderland. That's the only way you can. Any other way is just unadvisable. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. I'm Reed. Hi, Reed. Reed is Hi. here. Hi. So happy to be here. <laughs> Reed is the host of the Irrationally Exuberant podcast, which is just as exciting as the intensity of the name would imply. I think it's pretty exciting. It, it is. That wasn't sarcasm. Okay, good. I, I like your show a lot. It's hard to tell in this day and age. <laughs> it, it's true in these, these post-post-ironic times. <laughs> yeah, right. What have you come on our show to talk about today, Reed? I am insanely excited to be here to talk about Ethan Frome by Edith Wharton. And you're a bad person for doing so. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of weird names there. Y- Ethan's yeah. Ethan's a weird name. From definitely. How is Ethan right. a weird name? That's a pretty weird name. Y- you y- don't come y- across it that often. You talk about Ethan Hawk pretty regularly. I do? Yes, you do. When? Uh, whenever you bring up like Gattaca. The Gattaca's and- good. We're going to get way weirder with the names here too, by the way. Ethan is the tip of the iceberg. If you think that's weird. We've got this a, is true. We've got a Zenobia and a Jotham for you. We do, we do have a Jotham. Um, yeah. He, yeah. He has no, he's got no idea because let's, let's kind of, I guess, start this as we, as we usually do. Hey, RJ, did you read Ethan Frome in school? I wouldn't even know if they assigned us in school. <laughs> I think I got assigned it in 10th grade, something like that. I feel like that's when I read it. Yeah, but I'm always surprised at how many people have never heard of it. I thought it was more widely read than apparently it is. Yeah, that's what I have come to realize as well uh, leading up to this talking about it is that a lot of people don't know it. And it's considered Edith Wharton's most popular work, even though it's not the one that she won, you know, the Pulitzer Prize for. Right. Uh, but yeah, no, so it's it's not very widely known. When we get to adaptations, there's there's very little to talk about. And um, I was kind of surprised because I do remember that our, our teacher did impart it as a big literary sort of landmark book. Uh, right. I don't know what, what you experienced. Well, I, I think the problem maybe is that there's only been one film adaptation and it's terrible. Yes, but we it, got we got to save that. <laughs> we'll get we'll get to that later. But I mean, it's not a it's not it's just not a a book that lends itself to the screen because it's I I feel like all of the interesting parts are internal. But I I, I don't know if I recall how it was presented to me exactly. I just knew that I liked it. It spoke to me. That's a pretty big deal, especially as like a high schooler being like sixteen and being like, yes, I am about this. Right. Yeah. This. Uh, this. Old-timey 
middle-aged wealthy woman really understands um, how I feel around girls. That, I feel like that's maybe was my main thought at the time. Ah, okay. Who's yeah. a better person to turn to to figure that out? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, and then I promptly forgot about the book and about Eve Wharton, and then I, I got assigned House of Mirth in, like, grad school, and I loved it, and I was like, hell yeah, this is so good. It's, like, fun and light and breezy and, like, sticking it to rich people. I like this Edith Wharton lady. What else has she done? And I looked it up, and there was this, like, moment of, oh, oh, no. <laughs> I've never read anything else that she's written. I just don't have the heart to do it. I, I'm just, it's like a delicate balance already of, like, loving this and, and understanding that there are major, major flaws. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, this is very, very different. House of Mirth uh, does a lot of the same kind of narrative moves, which we're going to talk about. But like I said, it's fun and light and breezy. Whereas Ethan Frome is a terrible uphill drudge through the snow and just in the company of absolutely miserable people. And with that in mind, before we can get into that, we got to talk about the lady who brought it to life. Yeah. Uh, RJ? Edith Newbold Jones, born January 24th, 1862, died August 11th, 1937. Now, I could call her Edie, maybe Eddie. You could. Or if I went with the middle name, Noob or Newbie. But I like Edith. I like her family. And so I'm going to respect her family and their nickname for her. Allow me to indulge and quote from her bio. Oh, Jesus. Quote. To her friends and family, she was known as Pussy Jones. Oh, no! No! No, she wasn't. You're lying. That's her biography. You're telling dirty lies. Pussy was born to George Frederick Jones and Lucretia Stevens Rhinelander. You're not going to do this the whole time. They called her Pussy. It's a perfectly cromulent name. She says it a lot in the book, now that I think about it. Yeah. I mean, you're not wrong. They called her Pussy. Let's and go with it. I, I'm with you, man. Let's let's go, Pussycat. So Pussy was born to George Frederick Jones and Lucretia Stevens Rhinelander. Very white person thing to do at their posh home in New York City. Now, I need to explain just how posh and rich this family was. Okay. So the exact piece of real estate that she was born at is now a Starbucks. So I can't tell you what that piece of real estate goes for today. But there are adjacent one-bedroom, two-bath apartments go for $10,000 a month. It's not too shabby of an area. It's weird the things that you decide to research and not research when you do these. In short, Pussy's family was stacked. Actually, if you noticed, her last name is Jones. Her dad's family were the Joneses, as in keeping up with the Joneses. Hey. Uh, yes, Pussy's family is those Joneses who made their money from real estate. Literally those Joneses. Literally. It, it was Yes, that, that saying comes from the family, right? It does. You had to keep up with Pussy. <laughs> can't let her get away i hate everything about it <laughs> gotta catch her there she goes there she goes and this brings us very quickly to this week's edition of financing with rj it, uh, it does talk, you talk about the real estate bubble if we're talking about the joneses meg i'm gonna get this chance one time and we're gonna keep up with them all right and it's not just any financing with rj have no. you looked at the calendar it's no. the holiday season edition not when this comes out, it won't be. Uh, this is going to hit in, like, January. Oh, oh. shit. <laughs> All right. It's maybe a post-holiday season edition. Put this in your pocket for next 
holiday season. Now, the gift-giving season apparently was here. <laughs> read it. Just read it. We'll figure it out. It'll the gift-giving season is here. Maybe. New, well, it is as I'm recording this. There you go. New TV this, new phone that, tickle me action figure this. Yes, that time of year where everyone tries to keep up with the Joneses, or at least the people they see in TV commercials. Well, RJ's here to say, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. There's nothing good that will flow from you splurging that bonus check away on temporary non-necessities. Those pieces of plastic will break. That TV will burn out. The hookers and blow won't be there next week. So this holiday season, remember, just embrace stopping urgent spending. Stopping urgent. Just embrace Wait, wait, oh, wait. Stopping. Jesus. Urgent spending. Jesus. Oh, you got it on the I nose. Got, I did. This holiday season, remember. Jesus. Jesus. He spends a <laughs> lot of time on the acronym. He probably spends more time on the acronyms than on the actual biography. This week's episode of Financing with RJ is brought to you by the reason for the season. Western mercantilism. <laughs> You'll never be a starving African child in America. Western mercantilism. Cheers. Anyway, back to Pussy in the Gang. <laughs> I'm totally on board with this. I I 100% co-sign whatever's happening right now. Welcome to my health. Uh-huh, uh-huh. The Pussy was baptized at Grace Church, a historical national landmark, on April 20th, 1862. Floor 20, bless it. Boys it. <laughs> so Pussy was born during the American Civil War. Being a daughter in a rich, white family in the North, this didn't really impact her too much. Really, the only hardship she had to endure because of the war was that her family had to stay on constant holiday in France, Italy, and Germany, and Spain to help ease the pain of American currency suffering depreciation due to the war and Reconstruction. Ooh, that's tough. (laughs) Is that not what financing with RJ would recommend? Just go on holiday? I'm patriotic. You fight for your right. Was she not a tiny child? You get out there. Give them water. Be like like one of them little dogs. <laughs> like Beethoven. The little St. Bernard's. You put the little Swiss Miss around your neck and you run out to the troops. Sir, sir, <laughs> would you like some Swiss Miss? You sound like you're uh, having a fucking stroke. I don't think I've seen that War Bonds poster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you haven't seen the... the Uncle, Uncle Sam wants you to strap your children with little uh, Swiss Miss barrels and support the troops poster. Right, that doesn't really lend itself to sloganeering. No, so not so much. Yeah, it doesn't quite roll off the tongue. Right. Yeah, well, so these people just jumped down. The family spent about six years on holiday in Europe. Unsurprisingly, Pussy became fluent in French, German, and Italian. Once returning to the U.S., the family wintered in New York and summered in Newport, Rhode Island. So posh. Very white. Pussy's education came at the hands of private tutors throughout her childhood. Please phrase that differently. Pussy was hungry, though. Pussy was thirsty for more knowledge. So she started to sneak into her father's library to read novels. Well, embarrassingly, she was caught by her parents and was forbade to read novels until she was married. What? Yeah. That sucks. They told her, don't read no more novels. You were a naughty girl. Not till you're married. No novels till you put a ring on it. That's, That's the rule. She wasn't quick to marry, though. Part of that may be due to the fact she rejected the fashion and etiquette of a young woman at the time. Hell yeah. She considered it to be shallow, oppressive, and superficial. Damn right. Despite her not having permission to read, however, it didn't stop her from actually writing, which she continued to do from a young age. When she was a wee little pussy, she partook in what her family referred to as, quote, making up. 
She would wander around with an empty ledger and speak aloud as if reading while flipping through the empty pages. When she was 11, she attempted to write her first novel. Her mom said it sucked, so Pussy turned her attention to poetry. It's always nice when parents really support their children. Jeez. Yeah. That sucks. I mean, I guess that's not quite as bad as Robert Louis Stevenson, whose parents just had like a nervous breakdown when they found out he wasn't going to go like build lighthouses and said, you've ruined this family. But it's still kind of rough. Who's going to build the lighthouse? Who indeed? When she was 15, she was paid $50 for a poem she wrote, which was subsequently, 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 subsequently published. So wait, like $50 today money or like? No, like then. Damn, that's a fuckload of money. Not bad, grand. not bad. Yeah. For a 15-year-old, yeah, shit. Well, no, you keep talking. I'm going to look it up. I'm telling I know. It's like going to be like about a grand. It's about times 20. Because okay. that's how I figured out the uh, price of the apartment. Way to know math. She was making like podcast money. <laughs> sweet, sweet podcast <laughs> bucks. <laughs> However, it was not published under her name as her family believed it was improper for a young lady of her statue to be publishing poetry. So instead, the poem was published under the name of a family friend, E.A. Washburn, who happened to be a cousin of Ralph Waldo Emerson. Of course. He's, a, he's everywhere. He is. Despite not receiving public recognition, Pussy continued to write. She wrote a 30,000-word novella titled Fast and Loose by Pussy. You can't, you can't make this shit up. <laughs> Which hopefully was not autobiographical. And there it is. She also continued in her poetry. Her father arranged for these works to be privately published. Again, her family was not very supportive and neither were her friends. And so after this batch, she stopped publishing for 20 years. Jeez, it sounds like Eve Wharton was just kind of surrounded by assholes. Oh, they were rich people who wanted her to be rich. Rich people did not write. Poor people wrote. So what did she do with her time? She became a full-time debutante and socialite. How do the rich manage? She officially came out as a debutante in 1879 when she was 17. Following this, she was allowed to bare her shoulders and wear her hair up at parties. (laughs) God, there were so many rules. It's almost like every part of being a woman was constantly policed. Pussy, maybe wanting to get back at her family, started to specifically date a boy the family did not approve of. And despite the disapproval, she quickly became engaged to the boy. They should have just let her read fucking books. But maybe getting too close to the whole thing becoming real the month before the wedding, the engagement fell apart for no obvious reason. So I think she did it kind of for spite. And then she's like, well, wait. We got to end this charade at some point. Eventually, though, she did get a man. When she was 23 in 1855, she married Teddy Robbins Warden. A teddy and a pussy. A real menagerie. Uh, I don't get <laughs> how that works as a joke. Different kinds of animals. I, I guess. A, teddy a, teddy's, a teddy's not an animal. It's a bear. It's a stuffed bear. Yeah, it's a kind of animal. Have you not seen Ted or Ted 2? The desperation for approval in your eyes right now, it's magical. <laughs> <laughs> Teddy, who was 12 years older than Pussy, was also from a privileged background, and the two bought a house that would be worth nearly $3 million today. They summered in Rhode Island, wintered in New York, and springed in Italy. (laughs) All this became too much for the couple as they both had frequent bouts with depression, Teddy's being apparently more pronounced than Pussy's. The two stopped traveling and instead spent time moping around New York. After hearing Teddy's mental state was incurable, Pussy began to stray and get her freak on with some dude named Morden Fullerton, a journalist for what was then the young gray lady. That sucks. Your husband has depression. 
and you're just like, eh, you're you're kind of a bummer. I'm gonna I, I'm gonna go fuck this guy. I mean, there are parallels to what we're about to talk about. Yeah, yeah I mean, direct, <laughs> not ambiguous parallels. Very, very clear, obvious <laughs> yeah, parallels. Very, very autobiographical <laughs> parallels. And it's not like she jumps shit pretty quickly, like just warning about this, like, oh, maybe this marriage was a mistake. After 28 years of marriage, she finally jumped ship. Well, I mean... Deal I with guess, that depression guess, on your own. I, I guess the, the, the spark is gone. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. That's shitty. Now, this is not to say a pussy lived with her head in the clouds all the time. For example, when World War I broke out, many people fled France. But Pussy decided to actually move in and be a supporter of the French war effort. Cool. Specifically, Pussy opened a sewing workroom for unemployed women, eventually topping out with a crew of about 60 women. When the Germans invaded Belgium and refugees flooded into France, Pussy helped set up hostels for the refugees. In the end, she raised more than $100,000, about $4 million in today's money for the effort. Nice. All right. You know, at least the one thing that we keep consistently getting with these authors, because we keep doing them during the same time period, is that most of them were like badasses during World War One. She also helped 900 Belgian orphans find placement. Aw, orphans. With her connections among the gentry, she was able to get safe passage to the front lines five times. She wrote about what she experienced in a series of articles in 1915. Among her observations, she wrote, quote, We woke to the noise of guns, closer and more incessant, and when we went out into the streets, it seemed as if overnight a new army had sprung out of the ground. On April 18, 1916, the president of France appointed her Chevalier of the Legion of Honor, the country's highest award in recognition of her dedication to the war effort. Go, Edith. Teddy Roosevelt, famed inspiration for the stuffed bear industry, was inspired by <laughs> Pussy and wrote an article to praise Pussy and urge other Americans to help her in the war. After the war, Pussy would live in France for the rest of her life. Now, her French feeling may have been a little too strong. She self-identified as a, quote, rabid imperialist and oh. toured some of the French colonies while those things still existed. In 1921, she won a Pulitzer Prize for her Age of Innocence. A book about how you can't be found guilty of a crime before your 19th birthday, for until then, you're in your age of innocence. I've never read it, so... No, That's not I. what it's about. <laughs> <laughs> like, you totally could have had us both like, oh, really? What? A husband wow. and wife can't be tried for the same crime. God damn it. True. It's true. This established old puss. She was in her early 50s by now, as America's, quote, First Lady of Letters. She also met Ono Lickloss alum F. Scott Fitzgerald. However, the meeting did not go well. The meeting was described by editors of hers as, quote, one of the better-known failed encounters in American literary uh, annals. That's saying something, considering how much authors hate each other. I always want to say annals. I know you do. <laughs> American writers at the time, Meg. Eh? Yeah, well. It kind of makes sense. Well, he didn't like anyone. He didn't even like himself. He kind of liked Hemingway. At least he trusted him enough to look at his ween. <laughs> what were they expecting, though? I mean, what would have been a <laughs> successful meeting between these two? That is a very good question. Maybe would have got the puss's puss. Maybe. With his little ween? Maybe. His little D. Maybe she heard rumors from Papa and said, no way, guy. <laughs> He's like, Edith, nah, man. <laughs> Stay away from it. It looks weird. Trust me. <laughs> anyway, when Pussy was 75... She just one day had a heart attack out of nowhere and died shortly thereafter. She was buried in the American section of a French graveyard, you know, because us Americans stick together in life and death. The end. 
beautiful. What a tribute to Pussy. an exceptional American author. That's what you could expect here on Ono Lit Class. I have choked up. Pussy Jones. Oh. So I have a quote here from a critic that I did not source. So someone said it. Uh, you might never read another book quite like this one. Edith Wharton performed a boldly original literary experiment when she wrote Ethan Frome. This novella is unusual from voice to punctuation to structure to the story itself. That's that's an interesting take. Okay, so a, a lot is made about the framing device. Yeah, oh yeah fucking hate framing And device. it is, um, I mean, it's there. <laughs> it's there. It's certainly there. And it is there. It's necessary for, like, the, the punch at the end, for the emotional It's, I guess, climax. for, like, the, the wacky twist. Right. But it's fairly nonsensical. It's absolutely nonsensical. <laughs> we're gonna get we're gonna get there. <laughs> yeah. So the one thing I want to say first, actually, there's two things I want to say first, and then then we'll get into the story proper. So first is uh, that like many uh, Ona the class alums, and I'm surprised RJ that you didn't mention this. She was very good at throwing just exquisite shade at people, which might have been why uh, she and F Scott didn't didn't get off. They didn't get off because he's a big baby. Who I think she always got off. Okay. <laughs> Poor choice of words. Warden also thought that book critics just in general were, were idiots. Not not even when they disparaged her work, but also when they liked it. And she wrote to a friend regarding the critical praise for Ethan Frome, quote, They don't know why it's good, but they are right. It is. Yeah. She's exactly right. <laughs> it's big dick energy. She is exactly right. <laughs> it is hard to say why it's good, but it is good. And then the other thing that I feel like is worth mentioning is she based this story on an actual event that happened in Lenox, Massachusetts, I believe, where she had she had a house there. And so she followed around the people who were in the real life accident that inspired the story like a fucking ghoul trolling for information, much like the narrator that we're going to encounter. Right. But uh, so the incident in question was just a sledding accident, right? Yeah, yeah. There wasn't anything sexy involved in it, as far as I know. It was just like a gruesome sledding accident, and she was like, "Hmm." Yeah, Gross. tell me more. And they're like, "We they got on a sled and then they hit something." <laughs> End of story. Much. And she's Edith, like, "Nah." Please. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> Was there a little incest in there? Was there maybe a little incest? <laughs> might there have been some <laughs> Who's to yes, say? might there have been. Well, when you get thrown off the sled, you fall right onto your sister, dick first. Uh-oh. <laughs> Accidental incest. It happens all the time. That's one of the reasons why you got to be so careful when you're sledding. You, you do have to be careful. It's hard through snow pants, though. Th- that's a good point, actually. Why are, you, why are you sledding with your dick out? Dick's out for Harambe. Gotta have my dick out a lot. No. Well, you're not about Harambe anymore? No. You uh, died for your that sins. Is, that is a thousand years old. At least try. At least, put it, at least put it in effort. <laughs> okay. Without further ado, because we keep we keep alluding, we keep building it up, let us get into yeah. Ethan Throne, the story, as it is sledded. So we're going to climax? At some point. Uh, so three guesses what the book opens with. I guess we kind of ruined it. It's a framing device. Yeah. Yeah. Yay. I I'm gonna edit in like a sad trombone noise or something wah, at this point. Wah. So is it about a sled? 
No, not, not quite. So it doesn't help with some guy going, Rosebud. It does not. Incest. The the one thing I will say in its favor is it's not the found footage style framing device. Where it's like, I just found these crazy papers or something, you guys. Let's read a story. Man, I'm going to be honest. When you said found footage, I'm like, Megan, it couldn't be found footage. It's written like, you know, in the early 1900s. <laughs> <it's a bunch laughs> she was very influenced by the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> from what I hear. It's it's true. I've no, plus, so you wouldn't call it found footage. You would call it found papers. And it, found you papers. You wouldn't refer to papers as footage. Okay. I'm trying to, to get at a concept by using accessible language, so fuck, fuck me, I guess. <laughs> so, while not specifically labeled as such, this framing device is technically the prologue. And in it, we are introduced to a narrator who is never identified, which means we can make them whoever we want. We got any suggestions? We, we made the one in uh, Heart of Darkness, Mr. Bean. I mean, the really convenient thing about this narrator is he's also never given a personality or really any char- notable character traits. I'm going to contest that a little bit. Okay. Uh, they do have character traits, and that's that they're annoying and terrible. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we're never given anything information about them. We're not given a name. So this narrator tells us that they've collected this story in, in bits and pieces from different people, and that each of them is giving a different version of the events that the narrator is going to relay. But starts by saying that if you live in the town of Starkfield, Massachusetts, then you've probably seen the post office, which is a weird thing to kind of say. Like, you see the post office, right? You get mail. And uh, if you've seen the post office, then you've seen Ethan Frome. And if you're like the narrator, so this is where when I say I claim that there are personality traits, you've gawked at him like an open-mouthed, rude motherfucker. Like a, a rubbernecking weirdo driving by a car accident because, as the narrator tells us, Ethan is disfigured. The left side of his body is, is all messed up and mostly kind of useless. Got a huge scar on his forehead and a permanently bent up spine. And, and also, just I guess, for, for insult to injury, his horse has a bent spine too. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I I think the reason that he's notable is because he has dignity despite all of that. Something along those lines. But you're right. This guy is just kind of a uh, kind of a dickhead. It gets it gets worse though. Uh-huh. So the narrator decides that Ethan is the most interesting man in town, and he gets sort of mildly obsessed with him, asking everyone like what his deal is, and he's shocked when someone tells him that Ethan is only 52, because he looks much older. Probably because he was in a terrible accident that fucked him up, you ghoulish busybody. <laughs> and uh, so he continues creeping on Ethan, especially at the post office, where he sees him picking up packages for Mrs. Zena Frome, that contain different medicines, which the narrator probably knows from, like, going through Ethan's trash or something like an overgrown <laughs> raccoon. Right, he does know a lot about the packages. <laughs> he does. He gets close enough to see the return address. So, like, even if we don't have a, a specific personality traits or, or quirks to identify this guy by, we know he's a creep. Right. <laughs> Is he a weirdo? Yes. What's he even doing here? He doesn't belong well, there. He doesn't he's an engineer, <laughs> right? He's an, he's like got some kind of engineering job in town. But I, I, you're really revealing a new and more interesting way to create to make this into a movie. <laughs> Just an ob- obsessive 
weirdo. Yeah. Inside his house, he, he's got like one of those things with the push pins in that no, he's right. not Jason Voorhees. Uh, with the push pins in the string and different pictures. And in the middle is just a picture of Ethan from Locks of Ethan's hair. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> The narrator is also told by townsfolk that Ethan's accident, which happened more than 20 years ago, would most likely have killed a normal guy. But Ethan's an extremely tough dude and will probably live to be 100, which gives the narrator the heebie-jeebies, because disabled people shouldn't live that long? He looks dead and in hell now. Yeah, yeah, he basically says that, and it's like, dude... You haven't even talked to him yet. You right. might be projecting a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, we do find out Ethan is pretty miserable. I just think it's really funny that this narrator, this person, has not spoken to this guy, but has decided just by looking at him, like, man, I bet he wishes he was dead. <laughs> <laughs> I've thought that about a lot of people, though, you know? <laughs> the narrator's also told that Ethan has lived his life taking care first of his dad, then his mom, and then his wife, stuck in a town that, according to our narrator, who I trust increasingly less, is a brutal, frozen hellhole. That in Ethan's younger days was an even brutaler, frozener hellhole. Subtly called Starkfield. That was my immediate next note. That's how how she wants to let us know, you know? Yeah. Yeah, So Dickensian. (laughs) (laughs) I would have given her props if she named it, like, the town of like prosperity hills or or, like right totally awesome town and everything just sucks there she clearly was not going for subtlety with this story though no not so much no when winter comes to starkfield and seems like it's saying comes her name's pussy i hate you it seems (laughs) like it's it's always winter in starkfield was it ejaculating snow from the sky yes yeah yep that's it the uh the narrator finally gets to talk to ethan by hiring him as a driver kind of driver to take him like to 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 and from his uh where he works Mm. i think with with a horse yeah yeah with an old barely functioning horse his bit spined horse so yes not a car driver like a horse driver i feel like you should have been able to put that together Uh, how come they don't take the horse to the horse chiropractor he has a bent spine straighten that horse spine right out yeah no answer i don't have an i don't (laughs) have an answer for that the horse chiropractor of a that, horse had a bust that's, that's, back. That's a great question. Yeah, I didn't have an answer for it. And then I thought you didn't either, but actually it was just because the connection died. Oh, you thought that there was that much dead silence like that. <laughs> that, that, that joke bombed so hard. It's <laughs> not a joke. I want it, damn it. I just, I just shut it this? down. <laughs> horse chiropractor. All right. That's, that's where I draw the line. This poor horse. <laughs> Clearly he's in pain and they're like, yeah, fuck it. Just throw this guy on your back. It's pulling a cart. They're not like riding the horse like. I'm imagining yeah, it, him wandering down the street. Style. I'm imagining him going down the street like sideways because his like back's all broke. <laughs> like a shopping cart with a fucked up wheel. Yeah. <laughs> it's just veering to one side. Well, do you think it's the same the same horse the whole time? I yes, I do. I, th- I yeah. I mean, this horse is having that's a really a old life. That's a really old horse. Also, it, it would be a really old. It'd be a 20, 24 plus year old horse. How old ha- do horses live? They could live into their twenties, and someone would have to mention at some point, like if they got rid of the horse. Wow, man, it's really great having this new awesome horse that doesn't have a broken back, but it never right. gets established, from my understanding. So it's the same horse throughout. <laughs> Otherwise, it's bad riding. 
I mean, mm. <laughs> yeah, you heard it here. First. Uh, you gotta mention it's a new horse, otherwise, just the horse you described. This isn't a film where you went from a black horse to a white horse, and like visibly, I could see that. Right. So if they ever mention it's a new horse, it's the old horse all the way. Yeah, horses I mean, go to their thirties. Mister Ed was fifty-two. Was he? Are you just saying? Yeah, you're just saying that. <laughs> I was. I. This is a true story. I was recently talking about horses and their ages well we were talking about whether you need to bury a horse once it you know passes yes. to its great reward and the girl that i was talking to said that horses live to be about 16 but i don't know i don't know who knows okay, wait, wait, one second. So, yeah ethan's horse if that's the same horse which since its spine is all weird i would just assume it, it is that's, that's an old ass miserable horse okay according to ihearthorses.com the <laughs> oldest horse ever <laughs> And this was verified. <laughs> Lived to be 62 years old. That Holy shit. Horse. That horse was pulling social security. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. Horse was an AARP. Alternately, what could have happened, hear me out. We haven't necessarily gotten to this. I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but perhaps our, uh, my man, Jonathan Powell's, maybe he passed himself and Ethan inherited his horses because he had two, I believe. And if he did, that's the luckiest break Ethan gets in this whole fucking novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The one moment of joy is the death of Jotham Powell. Now, here's something crazy. <laughs> and it happens off camera. There you go. <laughs> it happens in the ellipsis, which is another thing that we'll get to eventually if RJ stops reading about horses. Now, here's right. a crazy fact. The world's oldest horse lived in the same town as the world's oldest dog. No shit. Yeah. That's amazing. There's just something about that town, I guess. Something in the water. But yes, Ethan is driving our narrator with his sad, sad horse. First, Ethan doesn't say much, which the narrator interprets as Ethan being as frozen and sad as Starkfield itself. As, mm-hmm. as opposed to, like, maybe just not wanting to talk to someone who has been hitting up basically everyone in this very small town for gossip about him. Like, just a thought. Well, I mean, according to Edith Wharton and, and every every word she writes in this book, poor people are wildly <laughs> stupid and incapable of uh, eloquent speech. They mostly just grunt and have sad eyes. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. They mostly talk. When they do talk, it's about their troubles. Which they have lots of. Meg, so I got some troubles. gossip for you. So that oldest dog. Jesus Christ. His name was Pip. He lived to be 24. That's 168 in dog years. Pip. They thank you for your contributions. That's an old dog. It's a very What old was the dog. horse's name? Shane. Shane. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. Fair enough. But hey, Ethan finally thaws out. Uh, and the narrator learns that uh, his life has essentially been one big shit show after another. His dad was injured by a farm animal and died. His mom succumbed to some form of uh, mental illness and potentially also Alzheimer's. It's a little, little funky. Uh, no, that's a mental illness, by the way. BT dubs. I guess I separate and like because it's like de- degenerative as opposed to like having like depression or bipolar disorder or something. Right. I don't know. Well, and his his father, I think I I noticed this actually for the first time reading it today. His father got kicked by a horse and died. <laughs> Horse. It might have been the same horse. <laughs> I, I mean, we're, I'm putting pieces together now, but yeah, there's just a brief mention about his father getting kicked in the field, which I assume means by a horse. 
I think that's a safe assumption. Yeah. So uh-huh. that's why they're torturing this poor horse. Right. Revenge. Revenge. You killed my dad. <laughs> You're going to walk until you die. And then we're going to kick you in the head. That's pretty cold and terrible and pretty much on par with, with everything in this book. So yeah, he's had that happen to his parents. His farm is basically yielding fuck all. And he has to care for his wife, Xena Frome, who used to be, um, unfortunately, not a warrior princess, but kind of like an unofficial town, like, doctor, nurse. She's big into taking care of people. Right. Zenobia Xena Frome. Oh, time out here. Jesus. After some quick Googling, he did not die from the kick in the head immediately. No, I didn't say oh. he Yeah, did. it was the beginning of his downfall, yeah, though. Yeah. He, he got what they called a soft brain. Yeah, he, he got... <laughs> there you go. <laughs> he, got, he got the soft brain. He gave yeah. all the money away. Um, but yeah, he got he got injured, and, and then he died. I'm so glad that you are, are reading this now as we're recording. <laughs> You're getting it in real time, people. Real time reaction. Ethan Fromm. The worst reaction video on the internet. Because Just it's a not man a reacting to Ethan Fromm. <laughs> Quietly. Now, do we know it's Fromm, not Fromm, or Fromm? Yes, May? we know it's Fromm. How the fuck do we know? Well, there's a song. I'm going to tell who? you about okay, later. Okay, well, great, but who wrote and also, that it's, And also, it's spelled F-R-O-M-E. Why the fuck is it going to be pronounced Fromm? She loved the French. She was a rabid imperialist. Okay, but when you don't... Fromm Let's let's get out of the prologue, guys. Come on, we can do okay, this. Let's, let's get out of this goddamn through. prologue. So during one of these rides, this is a bad snowstorm, and Ethan invites the narrator to spend the night at his house. Like it's real bad out there. Just just come in, chill at my house. And the narrator has to like try real hard not to just cream his jeans with glee. And then they walk in, and he hears the sound of a woman talking very loudly, and then it stops Mysterious. immediately. Yes, it's very mysterious, mm-hmm. indicating that the Frome household is, is most likely afflicted with, like, Jane Eyre or, or Wuthering Heights disease. Right. Some some houses have squirrels in the walls. Others have tragic gothic secrets. It's just That's just the real estate gamble, baby. Yeah. I wish I had some of those. Be better than, you know, like, bed bugs. Right. We just have kind of loud pipes in my house. So the narrator finishes the prologue by telling us that being in Ethan's house... Gave him the necessary clues to unlock Ethan's tragic backstory, and then ends with fifty ellipses, 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 dots. Ellipses. We call them dots. They're not just they're specific groupings of dots. Ellipses, ellipses. There are fifty of them. The prologue ends with fifty ellipses. Yes. And they, according to to critics and scholarly types, uh, these are meant to act as a reminder that this is a reconstructed story and that there's a lot of gaps and stuff missing because we're getting it all, you know, secondhand at best. And there's a whole lot Third of other yeah, pretty much uh, ellipsis stuff going on throughout the story to emphasize these gaps. But I like to think of it as overzealous suspense building that the narrator is just doing like this really ridiculously over dramatic pause before like actually starting the story. It's like, and then I came into the house. <gasps> I kind of read it like how in Wayne's world, when they do the, the <laughs> kind of thing, you know, and like fade into the, the next scene. That's how I read those ellipses. It was an early 20th century version of yada, yada, yada. <laughs> yeah. And they yada, yada over the best part. Well, and because the next... Okay, so the, something magical does happen. It's true. I mean, you you are correct in, in that it does herald uh, change and things get sort of weird, stylistically speaking. You can you can take that. Well, and I mean, he, he takes these 
four pieces of information that he has about Ethan Frome, and he extrapolates them into an insanely detailed account of what, what led to his downfall. And not even just insanely detailed, the, the narrator is gone. For the entirety of the book, all the way until we get to the epilogue, we are not in first person. We are in like a third person perspective that is limited to Ethan's brain. Right. So as far as the story is sort of concerned, like we're in Ethan cam now, except Wharton wants us to kind of constantly be remembering, no, we're not. We're in what this guy thinks is Ethan's head which is deeply confusing. So as, as we begin this pseudo flashback, we're, we're 20 plus years in the past and we meet young Ethan. Uh, young Ethan was off studying physics at college, uh, but then his father's accident and then subsequent death meant that he had to cut school short and come back to Starkfield to take over things. At the moment though, he's peeping through a church window watching other people dance and have fun. Specifically, he's watching Maddie Silver, his wife Zena's cousin. Her parents have died, and so Ethan and Zena have brought her to live with them so she can help take care of Zena. So Maddie's been with the Fromes for about a year now at this point, and Ethan's got the hots for her pretty hard. Who does he? Uh, they hang out all the time. They talk about, like, nature and, and dreams and shit. And when they're not together, Ethan does stuff like this. Watching her have fun with other people and be mad that she's not having fun with him. Which is that that's healthy. Again, I, I have a hard time discussing this book without it just being very personal. Because when I did read it, I was like, yeah, I get that, man. You know, I'm the kind of sensitive young man that seems to be constitutionally incapable of having what other people seem to think is fun. You know? <laughs> All right. Fair. You know what I mean? Like That's you know? fair. I, too, was an awkward teenager who mostly just stood against the wall and didn't say words to people at social gatherings. I, I, I'm just say, saying that, like, Ethan's experience watching this dance feels a lot like how I still feel to this day watching people play, like, beach volleyball. Like, I don't understand what these that people are. That's very you know specific. Yeah. <laughs> this is a very specific example. I just think beach volleyball is my barometer for what other people seem to really think is fun. And I don't feel like I'm able to engage in the way that they personally are engaging. Don't you live in a landlocked state? I do. <laughs> that might have something to do <laughs> it, with it. Might be. it might be. I am in Fargo, North Dakota. We don't have a lot of beach volleyball, but occasionally you'll get a glimpse. At this point, though, Ethan is 28. Right. That's a problem. It is a problem. I'm 29. So, like, if I saw someone, if I was if I was doing this or if I saw someone do it, it's kind of weird. It's one thing when you are a very vulnerable, awkward teenager. It's another thing when you are nearly 30. <laughs> yeah. It's called peeping at that point, I believe. Yes. I, bl <laughs> I believe that's the, the word for it. Is the technical term. So, while, while he angrily peeps at maddie dancing with with people that are not him uh he reflects on we, we get a little more sort of background info that maddie is kind of shitty at, at her duties of helping take care of xena and do chores and housekeeping and stuff and ethan's kind of secretly been like picking up the slack so that xena can't use this as an excuse to try to get rid of maddie and say that like she's she's just not worth the the pain to keep her around so Zena has been dropping all of these these hints lately that that maybe Maddie will be leaving soon or or getting married or something, and Ethan's just like a uh, to whom? And Zena, who apparently likes to make a habit of being passive aggressive, just a little bit. To Ethan is all like, 
Oh, haven't you heard? Sexy man about town, Dennis Eady, is just all up in her business. Oh, Dennis Eady. Oh, Dennis Eady. And Ethan's like, what the fuck? I, I, don't, I don't care. This does not affect me. Because I'm totally not in love with your cousin. And I'm definitely not going to the church social to watch him dance and see the bad. I'm leaving now for unrelated reasons. Bye. Right. And, uh, yes, that's what he's doing. So after the dance, he he hangs back and he watches Maddie, like the big, shy, creepy dude he is, hiding from her, making sure she can't see him so he can watch Dennis ask her to, like, go sledding and then seethe some more about it. But he also is just mega horny just watching her because he's just so into her. So I just have this picture of a guy staring at a girl and a group of people while looking awkward and kind of pissed off but also trying to hide a boner. (laughs) See, I don't, I don't, I don't get. A phys- He's more emotionally horny for her than okay. That's, than that's physically fair. horny for her. I, Ethan is kind of like he's heart stunted. horny. Yeah, <laughs> right. He's hard horny. He's got a he's got a boner in his heart. He is a very stunted man. He's very childlike in a lot of ways. Like Michael Jackson, he didn't get a proper childhood. No, no, he did not. He He's had a horrible garbage life, and he married the first woman who seemed nice. And, I mean, we'll talk about that. Right, right, right. So I, I, don't, I forgive him some of that stuff, and I kind of, reading it, just pretend that he's not 28. <laughs> just pretend real hard. <laughs> yeah, you just pretend he's 16, and, I mean, that doesn't make sense either. But I will grant you, it is he is more emotionally horny for Maddie than Dick horny. Um, <laughs> uh, but Ma- Maddie turns Dennis down. And after he leaves, Ethan strolls up and he's feeling all triumphant. He's like, hey, you ready to walk home, girl? And is just like, hey, maybe you want to go sledding sometime? Yeah. Just a little sledding between friends? She can ride his sled any day. It is a strong, strong sexual metaphor. <laughs> I don't know. Is it? I'm not 100% sure. Okay, let me put it this way. I live in South Florida, so I know as much about sledding as you do about beach volleyball. Right. You ride ride (laughs) front to back, back to front. Depends a little bit on who's where. I prefer to go sledding in the missionary position. Yeah. (laughs) That's pretty vanilla. Oh, do you sled reverse cowgirl? I like to be the sled. I want to be the sled. Sounds very painful. Yeah, you get no, the gimp suit. Good. The I gimp have. I, you, you don't know much about sledding. I literally have been sledding in the past. I was sledding three days ago. See, this book speaks. To, it, it speaks. To me. <laughs> now, when you're the sled, are you belly down or ass down? Uh, belly down. The penis acts as something of a, a rudder, <laughs> cutting through the snow. <laughs> Uh, well, as a rudder, I would think it would fail because over time it will just get smaller and smaller as you pick up speed. You know, the, the cold has an effect. Shrinkage yeah, right. And everything. Right, right. Although, kind of like the Polynesians, I guess it's kind of a bit of like a wayfinder. The dick was not the wayfinder for the the Polynesian sailors. They dip their balls in the water. Uh-huh. Oh, you're sticking them all while you're in the snow. This is what Moana was about. Yes. Correct? Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Megan, you might not know this. Snow is just a form of water. I really thought you were going to say you might not know this and then tell me something terrible about penises. <laughs> they ejaculate. I never yeah. noticed. That's the most terrible thing about penises is that there's no <laughs> mystery to them. All right, now that we have thoroughly ruined sledding forever, Maddie... Kinda, it's kind of like sledding. Maddie kills the mood even more as they walk home by by telling him about uh, a couple 
named uh, Ned Hale and Ruth Farnham, who almost died while sledding, crashing into a big elm tree. And e- Ethan's just like, Psh, like amateurs. That would never happen if I was the one driving the sled. My dick would have turned sooner. Foreshadowing. Yeah, there's a lot of that. <laughs> a lot of it. So as a uh, further evidence of Ethan's 16-year-oldness, instead of just asking Maddie if she's into Dennis, Ethan's just like, oh, hey, so like, I heard rumors that you're going to leave and abandon us, perhaps for some man? And Ethan is so Ethan's just passive-aggressive and weird as his wife, and, and Maddie, like, freaks out. She's like, what? Like, no, like, what are you talking about? Has Xena figured out that I, like, suck at chores and wants to get rid of me? Like, help, I don't want to leave. And uh, Ethan feels very validated. He's like, nah, 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 it's cool. Don't worry. It's fine. There's, there's nothing. Let's, let's like, cuddle a bit. Let's walk home and kind of get all snuggly. Right. Like a 16-year-old boy, Ethan is constantly, unintentionally, a complete dick. And they pass a graveyard, and Ethan thinks, like, fuck, I'm gonna be stuck in this shitty town until I die, probably. Which, you know, mood. I get that. That's, you know. Right. But that it'll be okay if he can make Maddie stay in Starkfield with him forever. And he gets a warm, fuzzy feeling at the thought of them being dead and buried together. Mm-hmm. Which is not great. Ethan is very emo. Yes, he is. Yeah. He's, he's deeply emo. Ethan's a pretty emo name. It is. It really is. So while they're also walking, he thinks about his wife, that she should be asleep by now, and about, like, her gross false teeth, and hopes that, like, hey, maybe when they get home, she'll be dead. That'd be cool. Or murdered by vagrants. (laughs) Yeah. When they get home, though, she is, in fact, not dead or asleep, but awake, and looking at them like a mom who's caught her kid coming home from late after curfew. Maddie's kind of oblivious to just the tension of the situation, but but Ethan is nervous that Xena can sense what's going on and that he, you know, is in love with her cousin because, like, I don't know, she has eyes and is presumably not an idiot. Right. Because e- Ethan is making hard eyes at Maddie every second of every day. Yeah, constantly. I, yeah, she mentions many times that while Xena is talking, Ethan is staring at Maddie. Yeah, he's just, he's just like, wop, 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 wop. He's like... God, she's pretty. I wish my wife was dead. <laughs> right. Yep. Mm-hmm. As you do. And the next morning, Ethan's chopping wood and imagines how awesome it would be to kiss Maddie. Again, it's very, like you said, it, it is very emotional. It's very chaste. There yeah. isn't really a point where he's just like, I want to bone down on that. It's just, it, it's very, it's very chaste. And I wonder if that feeds into that whole thing of like, poor, poor people are just sort of cute children. They're not, yeah. they don't have like real people lust. <laughs> Yeah, there is that, for sure. It, it's very quaint. I mean, the whole town is that way, you know? Um, yeah. When he catch, catches the uh, the engaged couple smooching in the shadows, and they're very embarrassed Yes. to be caught in such a compromising position. But when he gets home, he uh, he finds Zena dressed for travel with luggage, and she says she's going to see a new doctor out of town. And this is bad, because it's, it's always expensive, and it never seems to do anything good. And we get the sense that Zena's illness is, is some kind of psychosomatic thing on some level, mm-hmm. and that she sort of makes herself sick in a way. And we also learn right at this moment that Xena is 35 to Ethan's 28, and he, he thinks of her as a gross old lady, which kind of mean but he's happy to let her go off to this doctor because it means that he'll be alone with maddie and maybe they can go sledding yeah who knows what might happen Mm. 
he can touch the the end of her stuff. Yes, he can. <laughs> he can he can gently brush the the thing that she's knitting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. He can awkwardly paw at the end of a piece of cloth. It's so pathetic. Um, <laughs> it's so pathetic. It's it, it really is. But okay, go on, go on. <laughs> he, he even spends his whole workday fantasizing about being alone with Maddie, and that it's gonna be fucking great. And he hasn't been this happy in a long time, which. is that's real sad because his life is just that miserable and was it it was miserable even before he was married uh when his dad died and his mom started to kind of lose her grip on reality and it was at this point that ethan's cousin xena came to help out with things and that's when you get the record scratch right it's like uh excuse me his cousin xena it's uh it's been a while since we had a a good old cousin wife on on the ono lit class hasn't it it has been a good, good old, some good old fashioned cousin wives. It used to be much more common, is what I is what I gather. Yeah, um, you know they're safe. <laughs> yeah, you know the crazy family already. You don't got to add to the pot. <laughs> That's literally the opposite in this it's case. It's just rearranging some t- uh, chairs at Thanksgiving dinner. Not right. anymore. Right. That's the important thing. Yes. Once you have your deformed, hideous child. <laughs> Um, you don't have to split time over the holidays, which exactly. as a parent is a, a real hassle. Oh, and that'll be <laughs> generations down the line. So you'll right. be long dead if you're the first set of cousins getting it on. I'm really glad you've put this much thought into it. So also, Maddie is Zena's cousin, who's Ethan's cousin. Matt, Maddie's Ethan's cousin. Right. Isn't she? Yeah. Distantly. Mm-hmm. As long as it's not all incest. <laughs> Just, just some. Just a little bit. But, you know, you get the sense that in Starkfield there aren't many other choices. This is true. They might all be cousins. <laughs> Old Town is just cousins all the mm. way down. You know what? That's, that is, that's some fucking H.P. Lovecraft New England bullshit right there. Yeah, you throw in some fish people, it's, <laughs> you're, you're right in Lovecraft territory. But at the time, Ethan was stoked to have Xena around because it, it had just been him and his mom who had like almost stopped talking completely. And, and she was really good at taking care of his mom too. And when she finally died, Xena was going to leave and go back home. And Ethan freaked out at the thought of being alone and asked her to marry him. Also, he was 21. The old panic engagement. Yep. Ethan blames his decision on the fact that it was winter. That, that maybe if his mom had died in like the summer or the spring... It would have been okay. He uh, would have let her go. But because it was winter and things were extra depressing, he freaked out and was like, no, stay and marry me. Okay, well, I, as, a, as a North Dakota resident, I need to chime in here and just mention that you do not understand what, what <laughs> I <laughs> don't. fucking cold and bleak <laughs> it is. I have a friend. We're near Lakes Country in Minnesota, right? Um, so people have their lake cabins that they go to for the summer. But everybody abandons that area once the winter comes. I have a friend that stayed in his lake cabin for a whole winter, and it broke him. He's never been the same since. He came back with a haunted look in his eyes. That sounds like some Stephen King shit. Yeah, it really was. All right, Meg, we're looking to move up north. North Dakota sounds nice. <laughs> yeah, come on. It's up in Canada. They got legal weed in Canada. It's got to hop across the border. Yeah, we just be stoned the whole winter, and then yeah. it's okay. Yeah, no wall up there. Not yet. <laughs> Give it time. Not yet. <laughs> Just emotional walls here. <laughs> if North Dakota is too far north for you, Meg, we can do South Dakota. Oh, yeah. The whole, Much better. whole other Much world. Better. <laughs> so, yeah. It was winter. It was extra depressing. Apparently, that's the thing. 
And, and Zena said, okay, fine, but I, I don't want to live here in Starkfield because it's always sad and depressing and also somehow possibly always winter, I think, because New England is cursed. And uh, Ethan promised her that he would sell the farm and they would leave. Except... Except the Mente. Except the farm never sold. Because it's a shitty farm. Shitty farm. And they never moved. And Zena got sick. And also naggy. And mean. Possibly because she was realizing what a huge fucking mistake she made. Right. <laughs> but, you know, whatever. Fuck her. Because now it's just Ethan and Maddie. And they're having a sexy, romantic dinner of donuts, blueberries, and pickles. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> that's my, that's mm. my favorite dinner. I don't know about you guys. Yum. Nothing like some undoubtedly dry, <laughs> sugar-free donuts and just sh- fucking sweet shrivel, pickles. Shriveled blueberries <laughs> and pickles. In a book that's just filled with just crushing depression, that is somehow the hardest scene to read, is the <laughs> fucking pickles and donuts. Just sounds awful. But it's very important that they're eating pickles because it means <laughs> that Maddie has to break out a special pickle dish. The pickle dish. This is where I start to lose my shit with this book. It's a pickle dish that Zena and Ethan got for their wedding. It's like fine china. I guess. And that's fucking insane. And and the only reason that this is a thing that's worth mentioning is Maddie breaks the pickle dish. And and they're like, nah, it's cool. We'll, we'll glue it back together. We'll fix it. It'll be great. I mean, I hate to do this, but pussy breaks the p- pickle dish. If we're, if we're, you know. Uh, the cat. Yeah. Okay. We want to be accurate. If here, we yes. want to be pussy. accurate. Yes. Pussy. It was put. I feel like I'm doing a fucking tongue twister. Pussy breaks the pickle dish. Yeah. There's no, a cat. P- pussy prattled the pickle plate. P- pussy perched upon the p- the plate of pickle pet pickled pepper. Oof. Fuck. Yeah. No. I'm pussy not. perched upon the plate of pickles. And then broke that shit. This is something I've never understood either. Right. The the pickle dish. Who has a special dish for pickles? Yeah. Um. I don't know. This is the only place I've ever come across a pickle dish. I, I've, yeah. I've never heard of this it ever. has to be a metaphor for something right i mean it has to be symbolic but of something what but i mean what, what I, I, I mean yeah yeah we're gonna it, it becomes fairly obvious but also just a pickle dish this is a good time to mention to everyone in 2019 year of our lord megan and i are gonna get married and we're gonna put a wish list up out here i think for the <laughs> listeners Ooh, too. congratulations thank, thank you. you we're gonna put a wish list out there pickle plate it's gonna be very close to the top. Yeah. 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 Garlic grinder, butter chafer, pickle dish. <laughs> okay, so th- th- this cat is like a, a surrogate for 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 Zena. Yes, the cat is Zena's evil familiar. Absolutely. Right. There's like it becomes magical again. Zena is like literally portrayed as a witch that can like make herself appear in various situations where she is not physically. Yes. This happens like multiple times throughout the book. And this happens later because they're like, okay, we're going to glue it later. Like, it'll be awesome. And so they try to hang out and she's sewing and he's like smoking a pipe. And he's just like, this is so awesome and cozy. But it's also really uncomfortable because they feel her presence. Like there's Xena's chair and she, Maddie can't even sit in Xena's chair because it just feels so weird. 
And, and gosh, what what a bummer it must be for them to, you know, have to deal with thinking about Ethan's wife, who he's married to. What what a buzzkill. <laughs> and they also just don't fucking talk. No. It's so... It's they just, just, they so, just gaze at each other a it's lot. It's so awkward. And again, it feels like so many interactions that I have had in my lifetime. Like, she goes to bed, and Ethan's like, man... We didn't even, like, hold hands. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> we can't even get to that point. Just touched her stuff. Yep. Whatever clothes, whatever thing that she was mending that I can't remember what it was. He's just like, can I, can I, uh, uh, That really is, that's my number one problem with the book and um, is, is calling cloth stuff. <laughs> I can't handle it. Yeah, no, I'm too, I'm too juvenile for that. Can I touch up on my stuff? <laughs> right. It's, yeah, it doesn't. It's weird. It's not good. But the next day, Zena comes back, and everything sucks again, and she she's shut up in her room, and when Ethan comes to get her for dinner, she, she puts on a whole show about how she's not hungry, and the doctor says she's dying, and it's all Ethan's fault, and this is apparently like a, a semi-regular thing for her, and Ethan's just like, all right, yeah, cool. And she goes on to say that the doctor thinks she needs a real housekeeper around to do all the chores. And Ethan's like, we can't afford that. And Zena's like, yeah, no, it's cool. Just just let me die. Never mind that I lost my health caring for your mom. And we're stuck oh. in this garbage town and we're poor as hell and you suck at farming. I guess I'll just die then. <laughs> she sucks. And uh, Ethan is just like, God, like, look, between me and Maddie, like, we'll care for you. We'll make it work. And Xena finally gets to the point that she's been building towards and is like, hey, if we kick Maddie's freeloading ass out of the house, we can afford a housekeeper. What what money are they spending on Maddie, though? Just food? Yeah, just the, the idea that she's living there, like, rent free is essentially and that she's supposed right. to be earning her keep with these chores that she just apparently can't do. And so, so in that moment, Ethan knows that Xena knows, and she knows that he knows that she knows, and then she laughs at him. And I, I hate these people, and I hate this book so much. <laughs> I can tell. I can tell. Then Ethan goes downstairs to dinner, and he tells Maddie that Xena plans to throw her out, and they're both very sad and kind of horny, but but sad horny. And Xena comes down to eat anyway, but she ends up having a shit fit when she discovers... <gasps> The prized pickle dish has been broken. Bum, bum, bum. This is, you, you want to talk about the climax, RJ? This is the emotional fucking climax of this book. Well, the irony is, is she cut off all her hair and sold it to buy a top for the pickle dish. <laughs> and now she has a top to a dish that's broken. That is ironic. She accuses Maddie of doing it on purpose. And, and yes, the pickle dish is a metaphor for their marriage. And it's it's still a plate that she put pickles. Oh, I hate this book. <laughs> but she couldn't even bring herself to put the pickles on it. No. She, put the it pickles was, it was, on the pickle plate it was that too the nice. pussy paddled against? Yes. Meanwhile, she's putting pickles in her old uh, medicine jars. Yeah, that that's gross. Where she's like, "Hey, Maddie, if you if rinse this medicine jar out well <laughs> enough, you could probably keep pickles in there, and it won't be disgusting." Yeah, yeah these uh, these stomach powders I've gotten here now just taste like absolute shit. But if you can get that out, it'd be great for pickles. So yeah, um, the, I, I can't remember the line exactly, but when Zena carries the the pieces, the, like the shards of glass out. 
like she compares it to like a corpse like she's she's removing a dead body from the room right 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 jesus and so so that night ethan decides you know what fuck it he's he's gonna run away with maddie and he starts to write a letter to xena about it but he wimps out because leaving a sick woman however bitchy she may be alone on a dead useless farm is kind of a dick move but also, he can't afford a ticket out of town anyway. Yeah, ultimately, he would have done it. <laughs> he totally he would have done it if he had a little cash in pocket. And I, I did skip over a bit where he does try to hit some people up for money unsuccessfully. Uh, the next morning, Maddie's packed, and ready to go, and Ethan has a fight with Xena about being the one to drive her to the train station, as opposed to J- Jotham, what's his face? Jotham Powell, Jotham the true Powell. hero yes. of Ethan from. <laughs> he wins the fight. And he and Maddie drive off, and they cry, and they finally fucking kiss, and they admit that they love each other, and that they wish they could get married and run away if they both weren't just completely dead-ass broke. So, you know, just just being being poor sucks, which, yeah, can't argue with that point. They reach the spot where they had made a date to go sledding just, just a few short days ago, and they decide to have a sled before having to say goodbye. And they go sledding, and and honestly, the image of two grown adults sadly tobogganing down a hill is right. the best thing this book has had to offer me so like, far. Like we- weeping and kissing a little <laughs> yeah. along the way. They're just going down the hill like, Wee! <laughs> this is so whimsical. <laughs> I, I mean, how big is the hill? Like, the, the hill must just be massive. It must be, considering what happens next. Um, right. But, yeah, no, I just, I really like the idea of just watching to a just grim, uh, solemn sledding. <laughs> just a, a, yeah, a lanky, sunken-eyed farmer and his, his, his young mistress. <laughs> just, just having a very depressed... Just, just, just having a sled. They don't even have their own sled. They had to borrow. This is true. Borrow the kids, the other guy's sled. Yep. <laughs> I just can't get over that shit. But then it's time to go. But Maddie wants one more ride on the sled. But like, Thelma and Louise style. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the the final sled. <laughs> the sled ride to end all sled rides. And at, at first, Ethan is just like, like, are you fucking nuts? But they cry and they kiss some more. And honestly, that's enough to get him on board with Operation Death Sled. Right. The worst suicide attempt in history. It really is. It's just very, <laughs> it, it's ill-conceived in every sense of the word. So they, they get back on the sled, they hit ramming speed, they like grab each other and kiss, and then they slam into the foreshadowed elm tree. Just But, but what, not before. Uh, Oh, but I'm Zena's face appears before Ethan. Oh, and throws shit. him off course a little bit. You're right. I forgot that she uses mm-hmm. her magical <laughs> witch powers. Yeah, she 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 witches him. And uh, yeah, they wham right into that fucking tree. Except, except What do you think happens with the plate? No, not the plate. The pick the pickle plate is gone. What do you think happens to Ethan and Maddie as they hit the tree? A pickled plate paraglides down from the pinnacle of the pine tree. I mean, it's an elm tree, but that was still pretty impressive. Yeah. Elm pine. It's all trees <laughs> to me, man. Uh, so here's the thing, RJ. Mm-hmm. They don't die. They do not die. <laughs> then. They die eventually, I assure you. <laughs> well, they don't die when they hit the tree. As far as we know. 
No, we we get we did. Unreliable narrator. (laughs) He met Ethan. (laughs) We know he survives. We meet him twenty years later. No one can see you winking. (laughs) (laughs) You can. Yeah, that that that'll work. And Ethan comes to kind of lying on the ground, looking up at the stars, and he hears Maddie making small pained noises beside him, and he tells her that he needs to feed the horse. Right. And then there are 43 ellipses, and then it ends. <laughs> sort of. Sort of. Because there is still the epilogue, which picks up right where the prologue left off, with the narrator walking into Ethan's house to find two women in the kitchen. One tall and thin cooking dinner, and one gnarled and fucked up looking who is confined to a chair and can't really seem to move. And I don't know if you, can you put two and two together there, RJ? No, I can't. Who's who? Huh. You weren't listening. You were watching a YouTube video. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Plot twist. Xena is... Warrior princess. Yes, she is. she's ascended. She's become the warrior That's princess. Lucy Wallace. It's an origin story. Yep. That's the true twist. She's uh, above the law. <laughs> Maddie is the one who is in the chair and oh, is all shit. messed up and, and can't really move. And we learn that after the accident, Xena couldn't really go through with sending Maddie away because she was an invalid and she would look like kind of a horrible person. So Maddie came back to stay and, and Xena miraculously recovered from her vague and unspecified illness to take care of Ethan and, and Maddie and nurse them back to health. But don't worry. They're still all miserable, and they hate each other, and they will argue and make each one wish the other was dead until they all actually die. So, you know, good plan, Maddie. That worked out awesome. The The end. end. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Fuck this book. Fucking crushing. Emotionally devastating. Except- No, no, light is the end of this time. No, not at all. Ah, jeez, I just- I'm going to save the the diatribe for when we get get to the how do we feel about this book and going to jump to adaptations. So as we mentioned, there's there's one film. It is a 1993 film starring Liam Neeson and Patricia Arquette and it was directed by John Madden. Not that no, not not that mm-hmm. one. Football. Not could, that one. Could have been. Or the one yeah. with the popcorn. May, may as well have been. He uh, he won he won the Academy Award for Shakespeare in Love and also went on to grace us with everyone's favorite films about colonialist uh, racism and old people boning down the best exotic Marigold Hotel and of course the second best exotic Marigold Hotel. Ooh. The film maintains a fifty five percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Roger Ebert gave it a star and a half, and I mention Roger Ebert purely because that review has this very good sentence, which is quote. This is the kind of movie they used to show us in high school English class, where it gave literature a bad name. He's right. Tell me why the movie is bad. I have not seen it. Okay, so, well, first of all, Liam Neeson is 20 years too old <laughs> to be playing this part. I So he's playing old Ethan and young Ethan, and it, it does not work at all. And his his mangled old Ethan is just, it's it's so laughable. I, he's, I mean, he's just bent over and, and kind of limping. That's, that's really <laughs> that's it. it. Oh, I'm, bent, I'm very bent yeah. over. I've lived a hard right. life. I'm Ethan Frome. Yeah, and I'm not sure if I've mentioned this, but I read this book once a year, usually on the first snowfall, because I am an old, old man. I mean, this book is like embedded in my bones. And I think I finally understand like how 
you know, the nerds be, get so upset about adaptations, you know, like, uh, Boba Fett's belt isn't red, you know, that kind of shit. Right. Yeah. Because that's how I felt the entire time. It's just the small differences. I'm like, Maddie Silver <laughs> is not fucking Patricia Arquette, number one. She's not blonde. It's just very weird casting in general. It is weird casting. And this is before <laughs> Patricia Arquette got her teeth Hollywooded up and uh, they don't look good. But that's kind of beside the point. Yeah, before she was kissing Kate Barlow in Holes, which can awaken something yeah. in a 13-year-old watching Holes. Sure. And seeing her dressed as a cowboy. Um, anyway. <laughs> yeah, okay, I understand. <laughs> I understand. Um, it's just not good. It, this isn't the kind of book that lends itself, like I said, to a film adaptation because it happens almost completely in this sad, inarticulate man's head. Yeah. And the action itself is fairly, well, not fairly, completely and utterly ridiculous and borderline nonsensical. Yep. So when you just whittle it down to that, it is not, it just doesn't hold up as a story at all. Not super visually compelling. It is not visually (laughs) compelling. And there is no way to make that sled ride look dramatic. And... (laughs) It's just not. It does not do itself any favors by just kind of, they're going down the hill, right? And they come to the tree, hit the tree, cut away to just a sled flying slow motion through the air in the winter night sky. Fuck, that's that's amazing. It is not, yeah, it's not good. Jesus. Yeah, and it's just, it's it's boring, which is the worst thing that uh, a movie can be. That's true. So, apart from... That movie, which is apparently very bad. It was adapted into a stage play in 1995 um, and performed in Lenox, Massachusetts, where, where Wharton lived at some point. The The other thing I have is, is, is a pretty deep poll, and it involves your, your girl, Regina Spector. My girl. Your girl. Yeah. And it's a, it's a song from her debut album, Eleven uh, Eleven, which you can't even get a physical copy of anymore, mm. I learned. And the, the song is called 299 Cent Blues, and... It's it's a Regina Spector song in which it's about everything and 299, nothing. Two ninety nine, two ninety nine a gallon. Yes, that's yeah. it. That's yeah. it. Oh, uh-huh. Reg- uh-huh. Regina, when did you come in here? Where did oh you come gosh, from? Yeah. Next, I'm gonna sing like a dolphin. <laughs> Gonna do the dolphin song. <laughs> I'm not going to acknowledge I'm that. Regina Spector. Uh, <laughs> Tiki tack houses and their tiki tack vibes. So I'm doing all the hits. You are just oh, then play, uh, the animals okay. walked up in their little cages or whatever that one is. So the lines from the song say, "But when when I get me all real tired and I've got no more strength to roam, I catch me a horse-driven carriage ride from a local man named Ethan Frome, not Ethan fucking Frome." <laughs> He don't say much as he tips his hat, and he carries his body as heavy as lead, and he could have still been flying through the snow on his sled, but the wife was in bed and the horses had to be fed. Ooh. Which, for me, carries more thematic resonance than, like, the whole damn book. And that's literally it, unless you want to count kids recording scenes from it on YouTube for their English class. There are a lot of those. There are a lot, and you should count them because they're hilarious and involve them slowly sledding into things Mm -hmm. yeah yeah they're very (laughs) entertaining it's fantastic uh but that's about it adaptation wise so that brings us to the the most crucial point of the episode let's get the quick one done first hey rj word up ethan from what's up good or bad oh i love it yeah yep why do you love it i love just the minutiae of rich people's lives 
sweating, pickle stitches. You realize that this is all about poor people and how much their lives suck, right? Could a poor person afford a dish for a pickle? That's a really good question. It's sort of incongruous <laughs> that they they live these mean, hard, difficult lives, but she has a plate just for the pickles. And the other thing here, Meg, okay, they had a horse, they had a carriage, they had a cat. That's true. And while maybe their bank account was small, they were rich in other ways. <laughs> but they weren't. They, they really and truly really were not. Weren't. You're such a fucker. <laughs> All right, we're done with you. You're not talking hey. anymore. <laughs> hey, Megon. Yerge. Ethan Fromage. Fromage. No, he's not cheese. I guess. Or is that bread? <laughs> Ethan cheese. <laughs> I guess that's cheese. What, what about it? Awesome or horse chiropractor? Those are not real great options. I absolutely despise this book. I didn't like it when I first read it in high school, and that was because I thought it was boring and... I didn't like it rereading it as an adult because it's just, it's just a slog. It's just a horrible, miserable slog. Like, I I like the conceit uh, of the unreliable narrator. I think that's interesting with the story presented in third person, uh, which is something that we normally take as fact when we know from the prologue and the epilogue that it's biased and it's incomplete and that we have to sort of fill in the gaps ourselves and like draw our own conclusions But it's also just a fucking slog. It's a thoroughly depressing uphill drudge with a bunch of miserable people trapped in a miserable story. And I guess you can justify its worthiness in making people read it based on like, look at this interesting narrative thing it does. But I also don't want to read a book that's going to make me feel terrible in a way that I don't think is constructive. Like... Like reading Night by like Ellie Wiesel or like The Handmaid's Tale where you're going to feel horrible because uh, atrocities and, and not because these poor people are dicks to each other. If you're going to make me dislike all of the characters also, at least give them something fun and interesting to do. Like in Great Gatsby, everyone in Great Gatsby's a fuckface, but at least like they're running around and they're having fun and they're doing the jazz age and they're shooting each other and hitting each other with cars and stuff as opposed to just sitting in a room and wallowing in uniquely New England misery and then just like crashing down a hill badly. Yeah, no, bad hate this book (laughs) hey read i love this book (laughs) so much like i said i read it once a year this year i've read it three times you masochist yep it's like the longest morrissey song it's (laughs) if you think about this book like a morrissey song it really livens things up i'm not sure if she meant it to be funny but it is funny in places it is um some of the conceits are so outlandish and you cannot give like a quick plot synopsis without making the person you're telling it to laugh i've tried you go they sled down the hill to try to kill themselves and then they don't and then they all live together and they're miserable the end and then the person laughs that just it just happened i I find it weird that we agree on like every point no i know except whether or not we like the book is greater than the sum of its parts i know that's cliche or whatever but this is very true and the way that edith wharton gets in ethan's head is unbelievable i mean she really nails a type of awkward sensitive unintentionally asshole man child I, it's, it's astounding to me that she was able to do it. She's so in tune with this guy's emotions 
and how every every movement that Maddie makes is like a mystery, this wonderful mystery to him that's frustrating, and he never knows what she's fucking thinking, even when it's so obvious. <laughs> you know, there are times where you're like, how do you, just how do you not, how are you misperceiving this situation? I don't, how could it be possible? But when you are actually in that situation as like a, a sensitive Saddish, awkward young man. It does. You're completely oblivious. That's just the way it is. So I, I, I think mostly what I love is that this this woman who's was able to get so far outside of her own experience and write this character. That's what I love. I also, can appreciate that. It's a very, very wintry book, and I live in a very, very wintry part of the world. <laughs> and she really gets that. And that. The twist at the end that Maddie is it be, has become the quote unquote shrew, it is devastating because she was such like she was comparatively a light. Yeah, it's sad. It's sad that it didn't work out. It's sad that her life became so shitty. Also, <laughs> poverty makes people into assholes in a lot of ways. You're not able to have the luxury to like expand yourself. And Ethan attempts to expand himself, and that is ultimately sort of his downfall is that he's interested in, in learning and getting a college education, but he gets just enough of it to know what he's missing, and it just ruins his fucking life. And I think that there's something touching about that for me. Shit, all right. You raised several good points, and I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. I don't like that at all. Yeah, the fact that I don't like any of the characters, that doesn't bother me. I don't, I don't need to like the characters. Yeah, I guess my thing is if I'm not going to like the characters, there needs to be something else for me to latch onto, and I just, like, don't have it here. You gotta latch onto the bleakness. I think that's why I read it every winter. You gotta get a good depression going to make it through a, a North Dakota winter. All right, so I guess that's uh, that, that's where we kind of got to leave it then. And we, we can recommend Ethan from if you live in uh, the cold, depressing Northlands. Every, everyone go. south of the Mason-Dixon line might not take away anything from it. True, fair enough. You're, it may be geographic-based, your your enjoyment levels of Ethan from. And that'll about do it for this uh, this episode. Reed, when you are not subjecting yourself to wintertime misery, where can people find you? And, and what on earth do you do? Uh, I make a uh, podcast called The Irrationally Exuberant, which is uh, scripted, absurdist takes on pop culture and history. Sometimes there are songs. It's basically just whatever catches my attention. I just, you know, riff on it. I like the songs. The songs are good. The songs, are, I, I think the songs are pretty good. I've, for a guy that has no musical talent, I think I really uh, claw my way to something decent. That's at theirrationallyexuberant.com, on Twitter at exuberant. Ooh. Shit. I never remember my Twitter handle. It doesn't matter. I hate Twitter. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Instagram is the Rashly Exuberant Podcast. I've also got a show coming out soon called Reed Messerschmidt Gets Metal with Robert Piller, where uh, I attempt to understand and become a, a metal guy, which I'm very much not, as you can probably tell by the fact that I read Ethan Frome on the first snowfall of every year. The Ethan Frome's metal as hell. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. Maybe. I, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's it's going okay so far. The website for that will be readgetsmetal.com, and uh, I think it's pretty great. Cool. Definitely gonna check all that out. You can check us out at yeah. uh, on Facebook, um, on Twitter at Ona Lit Class Pod. Everywhere that podcasts grow, 
out, down, crashed underneath an elm tree, desperately podcasting, and always at onalitclass.com. Pledge to our Patreon at patreon.com slash onalitclass, where you can vote on future episodes and get bonus content and sweet, sexy swag. Thank you as always to Best Day for our theme song. You can listen to more of his music at soundcloud.com slash best-day. The next episode will be on January 24th. Until then, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And I'm Reed. We love you. Bye. Now I do have some breaking news here. This is a book podcast. The Bad Sex Award nominations have been announced. Can I read one? Just one, please. (sighs) Yes, you may read one. Empty my tanks, I begged breathlessly, as once more she began drawing me deep inside her pleasure cave. Her vaginal ratchet moved in concertina-like waves, slowly chugging my organ as a boa constrictor swallows its prey. Soon I was locked in, balls deep, ready to be ground down by the enameled pepper mill within her. The ena- wait, the enameled The enameled? Mill? Why does she have a pepper mill in her vagina? Also, how is it also a boa constrictor? That is... Holy shit. What... Wow. You you have single-handedly just derailed the entire podcast. <laughs>